0: Did you know that the scale-up of penicillin production happened during World War II? How do they do it with countries waging war against each other? The answer? Collaboration between scientists, government, and businesses. Surprisingly, one of the main lessons children learn in kindergarten and elementary school to help save millions of lives from contagious bacterial diseases. Working together to solve a problem. This kind of collaborative effort is not only necessary for fighting diseases, but for every aspect of science. Hello everyone, I'm Bhaisna and this is the Necessary Symbiosis Podcast. penicillin. Most people have heard about it at least. But what is it? What's penicillin? If you want to know what penicillin is and exactly why it's such a major scientific breakthrough, we must first enter a world without penicillin. Side note, the American Chemical Society has a really great article about penicillin and the man credited for its discovery, Alexander Fleming. So much of that article I will paraphrase throughout this podcast episode. So in a world without penicillin, a simple paper cut could get infected and land you in the hospital with blood poisoning, and there's nothing doctors could do other than wait and hope for the best. Infections like pneumonia, rheumatic fever, gonorrhea were all untreatable. There weren't any antibiotics to fight these bacterial infections. So that changed um, starting in 1928 in a lab run by Alexander Fleming a professor of bacteriology at St. Mary's Hospital in London. In the fall, Professor Fleming went to his lab to inspect his petri dishes with some bacterial colonies of Staphylococcus, which is a bacteria that can cause sore throats as well as boils and abscesses. He noticed that there was something strange in one petri dish. Normal petri dishes were full of dots where the bacteria was growing, but on one particular petri dish, there was some mold and the area around the mold did not have any bacterial colonies at all. There were no dots. Something in that mold was preventing the bacteria from growing nearby. That mold is a rare strain of penicillin notatum, and it secretes a mold juice that was capable of killing all kinds of bacteria. So Professor Fleming asked his assistants Stuart Craddock and Frederick Ridley to try and isolate that mold juice so they could analyze it. Unfortunately, it was extremely difficult to isolate the mold juice, and they could only prepare some crude solutions. But either way, a paper was published in the summer of nineteen twenty-nine in the Journal of Experimental Pathology, the British Journal of Experimental Pathology, my bad, with a passing notation of penicillin and its potential therapeutics. Now. Whenever a paper is published in a journal like this, other research groups and scientists try to replicate the results in order to see what can be improved. The same thing happened here. It seemed like the only way to prepare penicillin was isolating the penicillin-insensitive bacteria from the penicillin-sensitive bacteria in a mixed culture. But at the very least, this paper kept the interest in penicillin, and other scientists like Harold uh, Rystrick, professor of biochemistry at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, tried to purify penicillin, but with no, no luck. If penicillin was so hard to isolate when Fleming discovered it, how the heck were we able to manufacture trillions of units of penicillin today? That's where Howard Florey, Ernest Chain, and their colleagues at the SIR. Uh, William Dunn School of Pathology at Oxford University come into the story. The research lab really started looking into the isolation, purification, and chemistry of penicillin in 1939, right as World War II was starting. Remember, World War II started in the fall of 1939 after Germany invades Poland, forcing Britain and France, Poland's allies, to declare war on Germany. With the backdrop of World War II, Flory and his research partners are busy trying to figure out how to purify penicillin. In order to carry out large-scale penicillin animal tests, they needed 500 liters of mold filtrate every week. They converted their lab into a factory after developing a specialized fermentation vessel and employed many local women for two pounds a week to oversee the fermentation process and inoculate the animals. While that was happening in that mini-factory, another biochemist, Norman Hetley, was able to extract penicillin from the mold production line. He was able to do so by first putting the uh, mold into an organic solution of amyl acetate and then using water. Another biochemist, Edward Abraham, used a new technique to ramp up the production. Alumina column chromatography was able to remove the impurities in penicillin before it was used. As the war started to ramp up in 1940, Flory was busy carrying out vital experiments on mouse models. He was able to show that penicillin protects mice against strep infections. The first human that was given penicillin was a policeman by the name of Albert Alexander in early 1941. He had scratched the side of his mouth while he was pruning roses and was infected. It was so severe that huge obsesses affected his face, his eyes, and even his lungs. Once penicillin was injected into his system, he was able to recover. Unfortunately, his other drugs ran out, and he died several days later, but Florey was able to prove that penicillin protected humans from life-threatening bacterial infections. Because of that success, there were plans to make penicillin available for British troops out on the battlefield, but with a war raging, how could they scale up her production? Florey recognized that the level of large-scale production may not be feasible in Britain, so he went to the U.S. with Hetley with the support of the Rockefeller Foundation. They hoped to interest pharmaceutical companies to produce penicillin on a large scale. In the U.S., John Fulton, a Yale physiologist, helped Florey and Hetley become uh, acquainted with various individuals that could help. One was Charles Thom, a mycologist and the authority on penicillin notatum. Fulton also referred Foley and Hetley to the Department of Agriculture's Northern Regional Research Laboratory in Illinois, specifically its fermentation division. Now, this is super important. And RLL was an important contributor for various innovations that actually helped increase penicillin production to the large scale that we see today. Now, one way to increase the production is to increase the yield or the amount of penicillin that's produced by the mold. This can be done by genetically modifying the mold to make more mold juice. Another way to increase the yield is by adding different sugars to see which one the mold likes best. That second method is exactly what the NRRL did in its fermentation division. The director, Orville May, agreed to help Foley and Hetley by creating a vigorous program to work on increasing penicillin yields. The program was under the direction of the Chief of Fermentation Division, Robert Coghill, and within weeks of the program starting, Andrew Moyer discovered that the mold preferred sucrose, a.k.a. table salt, over lactose, the sugar in milk and dairy. And And then Moyer discovered that if they added corn-steep liquor, a byproduct of the corn wet milling process, the mold produced 10 times as much penicillin. Then the lab increased the yield even more by adding precursors like acetic a- acid. A precursor is a substance from which another substance is formed by a metabolic reaction. The lab also recognized that the method that Flory's group had had to grow the mold on a surface was not that efficient. and a more efficient way was to grow the mold in a s- mold in a submerged culture. How does that work? Well, mold is grown in these really large tanks submerged in sugar, alcohol, and other substances. These tanks are constantly mixed, and there's a constant supply of oxygen into the solution for the mold. This produced a much higher yield of penicillin than Foys' grew back in Oxford. Now remember, the strain of mold that Fleming discovered was a rare strain. So now, there was a huge global search to find a better strain of all that could produce even higher yields of penicillin. The most productive strain, ironically, was found close to the NRRL, a moldy cantaloupe from a local fruit market. This particular strain not only produced more penicillin than the strain used in Florey's group in Oxford, but ultraviolet radiation increased its productivity even further. So that's great and all, displaying the importance of government funding and research. But that doesn't explain how trillions of units were able to be produced. That's where pharma- pharmaceutical companies come in. While Hetley was helping the NRRL increase production, Florey was trying to get just one pharmaceutical company interested in producing penicillin. Initially, he was unsuccessful. That's not because penicillin didn't have potential, but rather companies like Merck, Lilly, and Squibb had done their own research before and had very limited evidence of its potential, so it was a risk for the companies. With these initial rejections, Flory visited his friend Alfred Newton Richards, the then Vice President for Medical Affairs at UPenn. Now that's a rather impressive title for anyone, but Richards had another, more pertinent titles. Um, one of them being the uh, the chair of the Committee on Medical Research of the Office of Scientific Research and Development. The ORSD was recently created in 1941 to make sure that the government was paying enough attention to medical and scientific problems relating to national security and defense. Richards trusted Flory's judgment about penicillin, so he personally approached Merck, Lilly, Squibb, and Pfizer. The very same companies that initially rejected Flory's idea. Richards told them that this idea is important, that the companies would be helping the nation, and this would be, and there could be federal funding and support. Hint, hint, hint. However, with World War II on the forefront of everyone's and every government's mind, the large-scale production was a challenge for companies. Many of these companies were focused on the war effort, like manufacturing weapons and uniforms in the U.S the Defense Production Act was passed by Congress to give the president the power to mandate companies to switch to manufacturing products for the war effort. A couple of meetings later, in the midst of World War II, and right around the time of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the U.S.'s entry into the war, companies were encouraged by the improvements to penicillin production that the NRL was able to do. So the companies decided that they would pursue their own research and keep the CMR and the ORSD informed on of these developments. Then, if the companies gave permission and the research was of public interest, then the CMR would make this information much more widely available. If this process sounds familiar, it's because it was used for the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. But as the scale-up of penicillin production increase at these pharmaceutical companies, they started to face some engineering problems. Pfizer's John L. Smith captured it perfectly when he said, The mold is as temperamental as an opera singer. The yields are low, the isolation is difficult, the extraction is murder, the purification invites disaster, and the assay is unsatisfactory. End quote. Wow. The mold needs oxygen to grow, and The t- large tanks can be difficult to aerate. And since corn steep liquor was used as the medium, aerating the medium caused foaming to occur, kind of like how you, when you make milk froth. Squibb fixed this issue by adding an anti foaming agent, glycerol monosinolate. Lily was able to make the mold make new types of penicillin by giving different structured precursors, but another issue was that these tanks had to be cooled in order for the penicillin to be purified. Penicillin is rather unstable and is sensitive to heat, so up to two-thirds of the penicillin could be lost. But new methods of freeze-drying under a vacuum gave the best results for a stable, sterile, and a usable final form of penicillin. All of these collaborative efforts helped, and by early 1944, Pfizer opened the first commercial plant for the large-scale production of penicillin in Brooklyn. At the same time, other clinical studies were done on both soldiers and civilians. These studies showed that humans could be protected from surgical and wound infections, like syphilis. So obviously, this was seen to be valuable on the battlefield in the middle of World War II. In 1943, the War Protection Board decided to take responsibility for increasing the production of penicillin. They looked into more than 175 companies before deciding on 21 to participate in penicillin production. These 21 companies got top priority for construction materials and other supplies. The main reason why the board got involved is because the government wanted to have supply for the proposed D-Day invasion. But as with everything, once the public learned that there is a, quote, miracle drug, demand increased. But with such a limited supply, the first priority were soldiers. But by early 1944, production increased dramatically and supply increased well. In 1943, 21 billion units were produced. In 1944, 1.663 trillion units were produced. And in 1945, almost 7 trillion units were produced. With this huge influx of supply, the cost also fell. In 1943, 100,000 units of penicillin, or approximately 60 milligrams, cost about $20. By 1949, the cost was less than $0.10. Cents. That's a 99.5% decrease in a price over a 5-6 to six year period. That meant that more people could afford this life-saving medicine. Since the federal government believed in scientific research and development and was willing to invest in helping companies, universities, and individuals pursue scientific research and development, penicillin became an affordable, life-saving drug. It wasn't meant for only military personnel or those that could afford high drug prices. It was meant for everyone. With the number of vaccines and medicines that follow the discovery and the large-scale production of penicillin, the overall health of people in the world has significantly improved. We now have vaccines for polio, various strains of the flu virus, mumps, measles, rubella you name it. New and improved vaccines are constantly being researched, developed, and tested every year. A great example of this is Ebola. In 2019, um, the FDA approved a vaccine for Ebola called I believe that's how you say it, that was developed by Merck. The company had performed clinical trials in New Guinea uh, among endemic Ebola patients to make sure that the vaccine was safe and effective. Federal, state, regional, and local governments must all work together to fight infectious diseases. When Ebola broke out again in 2014, President Obama trusted the judgment of scientists in controlling the pandemic or epidemic, rather, and providing aid to countries that needed it, much like how Richards trusted Foley's scientific judgment. But what happens when the U.S. government doesn't trust the judgment of scientists? What happens when key players in the U.S. government try to keep the co- public calm, but pretending an outbreak couldn't come become worse? What happens when the very agencies in the government that ensure the pu- safety of the public have their budgets slashed drastically? Penicillin production is just one ep- example of how the necessary symbiotic relationship it- between science and government is so crucial. But there are many others, which I will discuss in future episodes. But there are also times, as I mentioned earlier, when the government fails to invest in its scientists' research and invasions. And I will also discuss those um, situations I'm Vaishnavi Kara, and you've been listening to the Necessary Symbiosis podcast.